The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. As always, 087 1400 106 is the number if you want to get in touch. We're going to kick things off as we do every day with our afternoon update, uh, catching you up on all that has happened today. Paul Hosford is with me, political correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Gina London, who's a leadership communications expert, a Sunday Independent columnist um, as well. You are both, both uh, very, very welcome. Uh, Paul, are you excited by John O'Shea's uh, prospect of two games in charge and then someone else will be in charge? That's the plan, um, apparently. I would have been excited if John O'Shea was the the full-time manager, I think. I think he's got like a, a good enough reputation. I think it had got to a point now where I would have been excited by anyone. Uh, we're six months on from Stephen Kenny being sacked. Names have been uh, uh, brought up. Names have been abandoned. We almost had Lee Carsley, it seems. We didn't react quickly enough to the likes of Dean Smith or John Eustace. Uh, so I... Yeah, I'm excited enough. I think if you look at it, six months go by without a men's senior team manager and then you announce an interim and say, look, we'll have an answer for you in a further two months. I think it's hard to get the Irish public excited about that. So the name that they do announce, the full-time name that they do announce in April would want to be a very, uh, I suppose, a very mm. intriguing name, a, a, a very minimum, a big name. Uh, but I, I don't think you're going to get that. When you look at the, you know, the likes, the people who've put themselves forward, Paul Clement, good manager, hard done by at Derby. Are we really excited about a guy who uh, was last head coach at, at Circle Would Bruges? Lee Carsley excite you? Oh, yeah. I think I think a lot of people think Lee Carsley is, is the answer. I don't know if he is. What he's done with the England under-21s has been fantastic. Whether or not that translates to the Irish squad, I mean, there you're working with guys who are coming through at Liverpool or, or Man City or, you know, the big Premier League clubs. They're very exciting. Are you going to be as excited uh, about what he does with, with the Irish squad? Maybe not. But I think people have kind of pinned their hopes on him being the, 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 the great way hope and it, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. It's kind of like, uh, Gina, you know, we're going to be talking about RTE, as we seem to do every day at the moment. We have been for about nine months um, in a few minutes' time and, and people wonder who's going to want the gig after Shuni Rahalik uh, has departed. It's something of a poison chalice. Uh, one could say the same thing about the Irish manager. Well, and I think this is part, possibly because I haven't seen anywhere where the FAI says that, that General Shea isn't necessarily going to get the full-time gig come April. But I wonder, because like RTE, there is such a need to instill that number one ingredient that's important to businesses, trust. And because of the problem they had recently when Jonathan Hill had to pay back 11,500 euros for his vacation days and his overextended salary, etc., that maybe this is, let's do slowly, slowly, step by step, testing the waters, trying to not make another misstep in trust, see how these matches go in March with Belgium and Switzerland, and then see how the response is, how the games go, how the people and the players are feeling and the fans, and then see if there is the full-time manager, again, in that incremental build Mm. of trust that is desperately needed in this organization. Paul, are are expectations too high, I wonder, for some coaches? Do they look at the talent that's there uh, and do they think, Irish football fans, they're an unforgiving bunch. Not sure I want this job. Yeah, I think there is an element to that. There's a small, it's a small, uh, I suppose, a small market that the room for success or the, the room to kind of make yourself able to jump onto the next thing is probably fairly limited. Uh, so you're not going to have somebody who's kind of up and coming wants to, to pin their reputation on it. So the pool of available candidates isn't there. But I, I think what Irish fans want, and, you know, count myself in this, is 
a team that plays with the bare minimum of a plan, a team that looks like it, it knows what it was sent out to do. And towards the end of the, the Stephen Kenny era, you didn't get that sense. Often, you know, shifting formations in in uh, mid-game. And, and I, I'm an Aston Villa man, a fan. I've seen enough managers sacked uh, to know what, what's happening when, when somebody's just throwing things at the wall. You know, you're, sh- you're shifting players around. You're hoping that some kind of, you'll hit on a system that somebody will come up with a piece of magic and it just doesn't happen. Um I think the the expectation for Irish fans is to go and at least be competitive in the Nations League game. Very, very tough group draw. You know, you're, you're going to have two games against England, which are going to be, I suppose, position us in a way that we like as underdogs, but are also going to test where this squad is at yeah. in terms of how, can it go and compete. Uh, a, a major tournament in the next six to eight years would be would be nice. Uh, you know, we all know what kind of effect that they have. And, and Gina, you're, you're dead right about trust in the FAI. But one of the things that, that you find with the FAI is that once the men's senior team is doing well, everything else kind of just flows in behind it. Whether or not there's actual trust in the, the governance or the, the organisational structure behind that, the public tends to ignore that if, you know, we're getting to, if we get to a World Cup, all of that will, will dissipate. Nobody will really care what Jonathan Hill's salary is or, or whether... Success is a great joking. distraction. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I also think that the two are also intertwined, that you're going to get a coach, a manager that's going to be an indicator of the organisation and the governance that is involved in the leadership that's picking their leader for that squad. And so when you're saying, though, that it's all going to be dependent upon that winning, that those winning scores, absolutely. And they're also still... in intrinsically intertwined and so let's hope to see that they're making good decisions because it is a reflection on the makeup of the board and the leadership and as it goes down then to who's going to be leading that team and the, mm. getting the best out of those players. Mm. Uh, can I ask you about, um, we're, we're going to get the views of Nathan Murphy from off the ball on this particular story a little bit later, but someone else we're going to talk uh, uh, to later is uh, the owner of Ashford Motors uh, in County Wicklow. This is a great story. So, um, well, great as in it's entertaining. I mean, I'm not sure it's a great story if you're an, an electric vehicle owner. So uh, Ashford Motors said they're no longer going to accept as trade-ins um, electric vehicles because they have issues around the battery and assessing kind of how many miles essentially are left in the battery. Uh, it's very difficult to do that and they say they're exposing themselves to too much risk. Gina, what that effectively means is that you're, uh, like if other garages did it and followed suit, your trade-in value is zero. As but, soon as you drive off the forecourt, your car is worthless. Well, yeah, we all know about any kind of car when we drive off, when we, when we drive off we've got a little bit of a, a lowering in our value. But I, for first of all, I want to say Nadia gives me great Marissa Tommy vibes from my cousin Vizzy, my cousin Vinny. She's a beautiful woman. She also knows cars. She's a trendsetter. She's also making an announcement to say that we're not going to do this anymore. And I think it's a reflection on what's going on with EV industry as as a whole. And I was looking up over in the U.S. For example, Tesla has been slashing their prices. Ford just cut back on the price of its my favorite car, the Mustang Mach-E, Mach-E, and they've cut production of its electric vehicles, GM, which had said they were going to go straight to EVs, are now putting more production money into their hybrid models. Mm. So I don't think that this announcement about what you were just describing is an indicator that the EV market is collapsing. But, for example, just last quarter in the U.S., the sales were up over the previous quarter, yeah. and there have been record sales, but the projections 
of how smooth everything is mm. and the value of everything, the technology of everything is outpacing the actual sales. Um, because Apple have to have have pulled funding from their kind of EV project. Now, this is you know Apple haven't confirmed that themselves, mm. but they don't tell us what they're spending their money on. Uh, uh, but reports would indicate they're abandoning plans to kind of build and market uh, their own electric vehicle. Polestar is funded by Volvo. Volvo, I think, last week or the week before announced that they were kind of pulling funding from that because it wasn't performing that well. BMW have diverted some of their investment in EVs into hydrogen cars. They're kind of running this experimental fleet um, in South Africa, Paul. Um, so, I, 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 look, I don't know because I'm not a kind of a technologist. I'm not into this uh, area. I'm not an engineer. Um, so I have to kind of take other people's lead in it. So it's, I'm trying to work out whether this is just kind of a, a bump in the road, pardon the pun, mm-hmm. when it comes to EVs or yeah, know, I think, I think whether it's something bigger. I think I think it could be a, an indicator of something bigger. Like you said, if, if other garages follow suit here, who's going to buy a, a brand new EV out of, you know, 40, 45, 55,000 euro straight off the, the forecourt if they know they can't trade it in down the line? Uh, the idea that you, you're basically, you're stuck with this no matter what, you can't upgrade, you can't, you know, you know, you see people doing PCP finance where they're upgrading every year. That's off the table. I think one of the things that it speaks to is probably the, the problems that you have in convincing the public about the publicly available infrastructure. Now, in, in, within the Department of Transport, launched last year, uh, Z- Zero Emissions Vehicles Ireland, ZEVI, they call it. That's in charge of a, a master plan to put chargers all over Irish roads, to put chargers everywhere to, to mm. get, you know, and, and we are on target in Ireland. We, the, the government has targeted 175,000 EVs on the roads by next year. That's on target. But the problem is that, that it's not shifting its market share. It still remains, penetration remains lower than 20%. Yeah, they know the old kind of, the, the overall raw figure of number of sales, which I like kind of ignores the fact that the population is getting bigger. It's like saying there's more people with red hair, there's more people with blue eyes born. There's just more people born. Exactly. And that, this is one of the problems that you have to, to convince people that these things are, are reliable, that they can be fixed. One of the problems that you have, I was chatting to a friend of mine recently about, about this who's a mechanic. One of the problems that you have is, is, a, is a skills deficit that mechanics are all trained, the mechanics who are around now largely all trained on on petrol and diesel models that, that EVs come with their own problems, they come with their own challenges, they come with their own skills that, you know, sometimes the, the, the skill set just isn't there, that it's very centralised, that, that not many people have it. So if you need a full-on battery replacement, some mechanics will look at that and say, look, I, I can't do it. Yeah. So, you know, you could be kicking it down the road. One of the, you're, you're looking at, at a market as well. One of the things that surprised me about Ashford's move is that secondhand cars are holding their value across the board, relatively speaking, in terms of, of petrol and, and diesel models. So a, a big blow for people who kind of adopted this. And, and we're told to, you know, we're told to adopt this. We're told to go and get yourself a, a, an EV because by 2030, we're not selling petrol and diesel cars anymore. That's a, you know, that's a, a, a statement of intent from the government in in the Project 2040. So if you jumped on the train early, you kind of probably feel now like you're getting a bit of an unfair kick in. Yeah. yeah, which brings me to the second part of her little announcement there on TikTok, where she was saying, oh, that, that diesels and car, oh, those other cars are going to keep selling the same rate. And they are to a degree when, as Paul just touched on, the prices begin to come down if they if they do on these electric cars, because the average person can't afford it. I don't drive an electric car. I'd love to. I'm still on a paid for diesel car because it's paid for. And when you can get, as you were also indicating, Paul, more public chargers, because most people can afford 
a car, then also we're affording to get that private charger installed. But that's another cost prohibitor. Yeah. And there's not a lot of selection. There's not a lot of compact cars in the EV model. Once you get that ramped up. Our estates. Oh, sorry, I know the old kind of station wagons are kind of a thing of the past. I've always kind of been fond of them. I always loved the Volvo station wagons. Um, maybe it's kind of watching yeah, well, all those selection uh, is, uh, is one of the, Chevy Chase movies as a kid or something. I want a wood-paneled <laughs> station wagon. Uh, but, I mean, there's no station wagon EV. Anyway, this kind of an aside. But the, selection, the, the lack of selection is also one of the prohibitors to the more people buying these things. And so will other dealers follow suit and not take the trade-ins. I think that's also left to be seen. Nadia's coming into studio a little bit later uh, this evening. So I look forward to that. That's after six o'clock. Paul, last night, I'm sure you and Gina, you as well, were watching uh, Catherine Martin um, answering questions before the Soroctus Media Committee. We're we're coming back to it a bit later this hour, so don't dwell too much on RTE because the temptation every day is to dwell too much on RTE. Um, But can you uh, uh, help me understand how somebody can refuse to receive a letter, Paul? I, I can't unless we go back and uh, I suppose consult the Bronte sisters or you know refuse co- correspondence that preemptively. Amazing! Um, I, I know there was what a great literary, literary illusion more there, important Paul. issues discussed last night. I couldn't understand this. Yeah, Shuni Rahalig, uh, let it be known that she would refuse to receive a letter from the minister. Yeah, she's Did you hide from the postman. Look, well, you've got Congress, you've got yeah. Congress people back in the United States who refuse to agree to subpoenas that are issued, and other people that are refusing to congressional subpoenas. So, I think these kinds of things, though, it just shows the level of, again, permeating distrust and between the organizations that are trying to hold others responsible and others who are. I mean, we've all already discussed on this program and others. How can you be a former director general and never be actually in enough, well enough to speak about what happened on your watch. There's a lot of things that are Mm. defying logic Mm. in this as it goes on. And it doesn't do much help to build and repair the damage that is being done. And the drip feed of all of this is not good. I can, my heart goes out to every journalist who works at RTE, who's required to report on the very things that are tearing their organization apart. Yeah, and I think if you come, if you actually go back to the D Forbes resignation slash sacking last summer, I think that's probably where, if if you were to get Catherine Martin in, in a candid moment, fully honest, that that's probably where the relationship started to sour when, yes. when she didn't uh, when she didn't inform the minister that she'd asked for the director general's resignation. We all remember, or well, those of us who who worked on it, those of us who haven't forcibly scrubbed it from their memories, <laughs> <Yeah>. remember. <laughs> trying to forget that became a that became an issue last last late last June early July when it was you know it, when it became apparent that there was going to be no compelability there was no real reason for D Forbes to come before an Iraq this committee because she was no longer a state mm. employee because the chair had asked for her resignation she hadn't informed Catherine Martin and, and I think what you see in what Catherine Martin said last week about what happened last week uh, last Thursday when when she asked her, you know, when she said she was going to write the letter, when she asked her about the mm. meeting, when Shuni Raleigh made it clear that she would constitute that as kind of putting her in a position where she had to consider her 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 role. I think what you see there is a relationship that's completely broken down. Yeah. If you're telling the person who's nominally not your boss, but oversees the organisation that you're the chair of, if you're telling that person preemptively, don't write me a letter because if you write me a letter, I'll quit. I think that, that points to a relationship that's completely broken down. And it was interesting, you know, we had the, the three, hour, three and a bit hour uh, Oireachtas Committee here at seven o'clock on a Tuesday night. Just what all print journalists love is a is an Oireachtas Committee kicking off at seven o'clock a couple of hours before your deadline. <laughs> really, yeah. really great planning on, on behalf of the, the media committee. But 
Then we had another hour and a half statements just finished there. Alan Kelly, really, really strong on this. Uh, you know, he said that basically the Catherine Martin thought that she was she was out the gap last week, that the this whole thing was dying down. She put herself in the centre of it. And she's his his exact quote was, you've left us with a, with a situation where it's you continuing as minister or the future of RTE. Well, if the credit card companies are listening, I refuse to receive your letters. Just want that. I want to put that on the record. Good I just, I, I refuse to receive your letters. Uh, Gina London, leadership communications expert and Sunday Independent columnist, Paul Hostert, political correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Listen, thank you both very much. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan weekdays from four on News Talk.